All right, this is, uh, this is often the setup that I do when I, I talk with Tanya. <laughs> I am in fact not Tanya. You are in case, not. In case anyone's wondering. Yeah, you're not. Um, and so often when Tanya and I do this, we kind of have a little banter back and forth. But um, I didn't prepare you for that. You did not at all. I do not have a repertoire for that. So I mean, I never prepare her either. But we it's just, fair. We just uh, 30, uh, 32 years plus, uh, you know, we have experience. And, you know, mm, okay. if you don't know, this is Carson. Carson's our youth pastor here. And uh, overall <laughs> good guy. And uh, Some say. Yeah. Yes. So... Um, so what I, what I was meaning to say is like that you don't have to feel like you have to jump in on any of this sermon. Oh, really? You don't want to just, like, just start going? Like, no, just take, I mean, oh, okay. it could if the Spirit leads, but mostly you're going to read Scripture. Okay. Just uh, when, it, when we come to it. Sounds good. So let me uh, start with prayer, and then we'll, we'll kind of jump in. <clears throat> God, we do thank you that you have brought us to this place. We thank you that as a, a family, we can share each other's uh, hurts and wounds and joys and uh, celebrations. Uh, Lord, thank you that you are, uh, you've called us in this season, Lord, to, to remember uh, who you are, what you have done. And this is the, the daily life cycle um, adventure of being a disciple of yours. And so we pray that you'd be preparing our heart as we look to your word and also as we come to your table um, shortly Uh, that, Lord, you'd be speaking to us and preparing us, Lord, as you have invited us to come to your table to remember you. Uh, So lead us now in your name, we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning, as you you can see, if you can see behind me or up above, we're beginning a new series. And this series is going to focus on what we call the Passion Narrative. And this is the week leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we find that the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John describe for us the events that are all around in this this story in a similar fashion, but also from unique perspectives. And that's that's really actually a a cool thing. Sometimes when you're, if you're new to the Bible and you read, if you're reading through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you go, okay, didn't didn't I read this before? And and that's that's exactly it. It's kind of all this, this pictures, but they have different perspectives on the events that happened in the life of Jesus and, uh, and different kind of uh, things that were primary to them and to their audience. So I've entitled this series, Once Upon a Savior, and that gives sort of a, throws some shade on the idea that this is, this is a story. This is a, this is a story, and, and if you think about it, what makes a good story, it's really the characters in the story. I don't know if you've ever been, you know, like me, where you've watched, uh, started a new TV series and you watch the pilot. And, and usually, I don't know, at least I find that the pilot of a, of a new show is kind of, I don't know, it's, it's not, that, not that great. They're just sort of throwing it out there, right? And you're kind of like, nah, I don't really know. And then you, you watch another episode and maybe another one and you're thinking, I don't know, I just find I don't care about these characters. And then you just like, don't go back to it, right? A good story, you find yourself drawn in by the characters, and, and there's the intrigue of the story. Or, or if you're not a, maybe in a book, right? You start the same thing. Some of you are big readers. Uh, you know, you're in that first chapter, second chapter, third chapter, and by then you're like, nah, I just don't really care about these characters. Good story has good characters that draw you in. And that's what this story is all about. Now, the, the main character, of course, in this story is Jesus. 
And he is central to all the events in not only the gospel, but the whole Bible. And this is, this is a, a primary thing of what we call uh, Christocentric, like that Christ is central to, to everything in, in Scripture, that everything in the Old Testament points to him, and, and it's all about, about Jesus. So he's the main character. We, we'll never forget that. Uh, but as we look at Jesus as the central character, we also realize there's other people, other characters involved in this story, and it does teach us a lot about how Jesus, who, who he is and how he responds to these other characters in the story. So um, I guess a, a key idea as we begin and we speak of story, it's important that you realize that this is not a, a fairy tale. This isn't a made-up story. Uh, if you watch, you know, there's some shows as well that you watch, and they, they begin with a little line in front that said, this story is based on real events, or real people or real events, or it will say something about, I don't know, lately it's been, this has been reimagined uh, in some way or another. That is, that is not what we're going to be talking about when we come to this story. This is a, a real story. This happened to real people, and so the characters are authentic, uh, real people, and as we'll see, they have real failings, real flaws, and yet through the midst of it all, Jesus loved them all, and even as they denied, deserted, and, and even as we'll hear today, betrayed him. So today we're going to start with Judas Iscariot. Sounds like an interesting place to start a series, right? Talk about a villain. If you think of Judas Iscariot, what comes to mind, right? You think of, he's the bad guy. He's the betrayer. He's the one that's kind of shrouded in, in you know, darkness. And, and you know, he doesn't, you don't have a real great picture of, of uh, Judas that comes to your mind. So... As we talk about Judas today, Carson is going to start us out and he's going to read some scriptures in between. And then I'm going to point out a few observances, observations in between. And then we'll talk a bit about some speculations as to why. Why did this happen? Why did Judas betray Jesus? And then we'll end with some principles to apply for our lives. All right. So Carson's going to kick us off with uh, looking, if you want to follow along in your Bible, you'll jump around a little bit, but primarily in Luke chapter 22. All right. So we start in verse one here. So the, the festival of unleavened bread, which is also called Passover, was approaching. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12 disciples, and he went to the leading priests and the captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted and they promised to give him money. So he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to portray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. All right, we'll start out with, with a few thoughts on, on Judas Iscariot, some, some bit of his background. His name, his name is uh, Judas is the Greek form of the Hebrew Judah, which means God is thanked or God is praised. It was a very common name uh, among Jews. However, um, the name Judas is not currently on the top 10 baby name lists ever since, right? Um, you know, you know, kind of wonder that when you're, I know our, our you know, kids as they're starting to have kids, grandkids, and, and they don't usually give us the name list, like they, they keep it very hush-hush, right, what they're going to name it, but, but usually we have like a, a top kind of 10 list of things, like whatever you do, don't name them this, and, uh, and probably Judas is, is one of those uh, on there, right? It's pretty fair. All right, so Judas, and, but Iscariot, 
um, Iscariot is possibly uh, named for the town that he was from, Kerioth. Uh, this is kind of a speculation. They don't really know exactly where this town is, but that's kind of the thing. There, the idea being there was two disciples that were named Judas. Uh, you'll see this when you, when you look at comparative lists of the 12 disciples. Some of them have, you know, used different names. Uh, some of them that, you know, they don't come prominently in, uh, in all the gospel stories. But there was another one whose name was Judas. He was the son of James, also known as Thaddeus. And so this could be, you know, something, this is Judas, son of James, or Thaddeus, and this is Judas Iscariot, just kind of to tell them, uh, to differentiate between them. Uh, You know, especially later on, when uh, they were, uh, you know, Judas the disciple, son of James, was saying, uh, yeah, no, that that was the other guy. That That wasn't me, right? Kind of important to keep them separate. Verse three, if you notice, this is a very clear distinction, um, and it's throughout some of these stories or, or very clear parts of Judas, is that it says that he was one of the 12. He was one of the 12. And that is, you know, just a, a clear sign of, of how deep this betrayal went, that he ultimately, you know, betrayed his, his rabbi. He was, it was the disciple that, you know, stabbed his rabbi in the back um, very much the, the depth of this betrayal. He was, he was one of the 12. He was one that Jesus had chosen. He had been around the rest of these disciples for three years. And so when, it, when he points it out, Luke is pointing out as he's, he's heard this and now he's, he's reporting this, saying that he was one of the 12. Now, one thing I, I often do when I look at scripture and I see where's, where's kind of the dirt <laughs> right? Like, this isn't, a, this isn't a clean story. If you were going to make this up, you would kind of clean it up a little bit. Where Judas is, is really this example. If, if someone were to, to make up a story about, you know, Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, as you would try to clean it up a little bit, you probably wouldn't include in the story that one of his own disciples turned against him and betrayed him. Because that would, that would lead you to, you know, thinking, well, if this guy hung around Jesus for three years, knew every detail and was around everything, and he, and he didn't have faith in Jesus, it'd be like, yeah, I don't know if I can believe either. And yet scripture doesn't, doesn't clean it up. It just doesn't give it a good scrub and say, oh, this is all nicely polished. It's messy. And this is... This is the story that we have. And to me, that adds authenticity to it that it, this story actually happened. Now, the Pharisees here, or the, the chief priests and religious leaders, they had tried to discredit Jesus. They had been asking him questions, tried to trick him. And, and yet Jesus came through these conversations unscathed. He, he always had good answers. He always put them kind of in their place. And he, the popularity of Jesus had been rising. And so these religious leaders were saying, how, how can we find a, a place where it won't be in front of people, but it says they plotted to kill him? This is, the, this is the religious leaders of the day. They were at wit's end. They didn't know what to do with Jesus. And so they're thinking, how can we kill this guy? And, and so this is what it comes to. And yet it says that Judas went to them. And it says they were delighted. 
Imagine, they were just like rubbing their hands in glee. Like this is, this is so exciting that someone on, you know, among this close circle of Jesus is willing to hand him over to us. Matthew 26, verse 14 uh, says, how much will you pay me? This is Judas speaking, he's asking them, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And it says, and they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And so in this narrative that we'll keep reading on, Luke goes on to describe the next part where Jesus arranges for them to share this supper, the Passover meal with them. And, and so they, they sit down at the table together. And then just a little bit farther on from that, uh, we'll carry on with the story, verse 21. Starts off saying, <clears throat> but here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the son of man must die but what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him. The disciples began to ask each other, which of them would, have, would ever do such a thing? I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each of them asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? He replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the son of man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the one who, had betray, who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. And in John 13, uh, 21 through 29 says this, now Jesus was deeply troubled and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, wondering whom he could mean. The disciple Jesus loved was asking next to Jesus at the table, or sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, who's he talking about? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus responded, it is the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon, Simon Iscariot. When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant, since Judas was their treasure. Some thought Jesus was telling his, him to go and pay for the food or give some money to the poor. So Judas left at once going into the night. So as you see this, even at this hour where Jesus has been saying, one of you will betray me. Among my disciples, he said, one of you is a devil. And the disciples around this, this table, it was a, one of the, during the feasts, they would kind of recline. That was the way they, they shared their meal. They reclined kind of, on each other, very, you know, in a comfortable way. And, and so he's saying this, and they're all looking at each other saying, what is he talking about? Like, who, who is he talking about? And so they started to ask of themselves. He said, am, am I the one? And they asked Jesus, am I the one? Surely not me, Lord. And so they had no clue. Apparently, they had no indication that the one that would betray Jesus was actually sitting among them was Judas, just didn't even register in their minds. So if there was a, you know, one who, who would you think would be voted most likely to betray Jesus? They, they were at a loss. They did, just did not see this at all. NIV says that. It says they were at a loss as to what Jesus was talking about. So when you think about this in terms of Jesus and his relationship with Judas, how much he loved Judas, even though he, you know, he knew that this was the one who would betray him. 
Jesus chose Judas from the beginning to be a disciple, to walk with him, to be with him. He sent him out uh, earlier for ministry when he, he imparted, he gave them authority to go and to, to cast out demons, to heal the sick. And it doesn't say anywhere that, you know, Judas was sick that day or anything. It was like he was a part of those ministry experiences. He saw firsthand the power that Jesus had imparted to them. We know from the count of John that Jesus washed his disciples' feet at this meal, and he will have washed Judas's feet. And even up to the last moment where he handed him a piece of bread, dipped bread, Jesus here communicated in every way possible that he loved Judas, and he gave him every opportunity to, to repent. From there, Jesus and the remaining disciples, they go out from that meal to pray. And, and uh, well, Jesus prayed, the disciples rested, fell asleep. We'll talk about that more next week. But then this, this crowd comes and meets them in the garden, and they come to, to arrest Jesus. So starting Luke 22, verses 47 through 48, say this. But even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Thanks, Carson. All right, so this, this crowd comes. And here they come to arrest Jesus. And there's, there's a lot more details that we won't go into about this. And uh, each of the gospels shares a little bit more detail. Um, but this was most likely the temple guard. And so they, not the, not the Romans, and it's not the chief priests and religious leaders themselves, but it's men that were sent from them, from the temple. And it sounds like, you know, kind of a motley crew, you know, they've got like clubs and swords, and, and they're, they're thinking this, this guy could be, um, you know, rebellious and, and, you know, take up arms against them or, or run or whatever. So they're, they're kind of prepared. And then it says that Judas comes up and he had prearranged this sign uh, of a kiss. He would go up to Jesus and, and kiss him as a greeting. And so this would be the sign that saying, this is the guy, this is the one. And, you know, because whether it was dark or whether they all were, you know, wearing the same colored tunics or something that night or whatever, they said, we don't want to make a mistake. We want to make sure we get the right guy. And that was the, the prearranged sign. And so they take hold of Jesus and they arrest him and the Gospel of Mark says at this point that all the disciples scattered after that. They all deserted Jesus. All right, so there's a little bit of background on, on the story and some of the scriptures that are, are clear about what happened and why, or as far as what Judas did. But I guess when we come to the, the why, um, I'll, I'll give you maybe the, I don't know, if the last one is we don't know. And so that's kind of the most plausible one, because we don't really know. It's interesting that the gospel writers, they don't go into a lot of detail about Judas and why he did this. And we'll talk about some of the possibilities, um, but we don't really know what was in his mind. And they don't actually, the gospel writers don't really make it a, a big deal, often just saying the one who betrayed Jesus. And, and so these are, these are just some things for us to know a little bit more about the person of Judas. First of all, you know, maybe why he did this was he, was he was greedy. He was greedy. 
Uh, John 12, verse 6 says, this was, this was following the anointing uh, of Jesus' feet by this woman. She, she anointed his feet with this oil that you know, could have been a year's worth of wages. And, and Judas was very ticked about this, very offended. And it says in John that, that, that that's what he was, he said, how much of this, this could have been used to feed the poor? And, but there's kind of the narrator's input there that says he didn't really care about the poor. He was, he was just trying to pad his own wallet. Uh, it says, as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so he was, he was a thief. He was, he was sneaking uh, money that was, was given. So as the disciples were traveling around, people would provide for their needs. Uh, we know specifically that there was a group of women who had means and they were, they were a big support to Jesus and his disciples and they would provide them with, with money and, and things for their needs. And Judas was apparently, you know, dipping into this for his own gain. It's interesting, actually, when you think about it, um, you know, who's, who's good with money among the disciples? It's kind of like we, we talked about a couple weeks ago with, with gifting. You know, there's some people that have certain gifts and, and you think, well, this person is, is good with, with money. And you think, well, that person could be helpful. Uh, as a church, we, we need people that know how to manage funds as far as how to add is important, uh, right? We need people that have some skills in that. And this would have been the same for the disciples as they kind of looked around each other and said, okay, you know, I don't think any of you have your degree in accounting, but how many of you, you know, are, are good? And whether it was just Judas raised his hand and said, you know, I'll take care of that. Um, they didn't look at Matthew as a tax collector and say, Matthew, you're the guy that should manage our funds. Uh, we'll skip him. It might have been a temptation for Matthew. But in any event, Judas, you know, he, uh, he was the one that they assigned to do this. And yet he was the one that was tempted by it and, and he couldn't control it. Now, whether he was greedy in this particular instance, it's, it's kind of curious because uh, scripture says, as we read, that there was 30 pieces of silver. Uh, that's how much they paid him. And I don't know if there was really any negotiation, but that's what they ag- agreed to. And 30 pieces of silver was not very much for, for this. Um, maybe almost like a steal of a deal for the religious leaders. They couldn't believe it. But uh, if you look back in Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, this amount, 30 pieces of silver, was the price that would be paid to a slave's master if, if your animal, your ox, gored and killed another guy's servant or slave, then you had to, you know, uh, make recompense for that and, and pay him, and, and that was the amount. And so Jesus was betrayed uh, for the price of a slave's burial. So whether it was greed, you know, it, it probably had a part to play. It opened the door at least to, to evil in his life. Secondly, um, was he controlled by Satan? This is the, the term that was read. Uh, Jesus said as well, one of you is a devil. Uh, he was controlled. Satan entered him when he took the bread. Um, you know, whether it was actually demonic possession or not, again, as I said, like he, he opened himself up to being used by the devil for his purposes rather than God's. And we would assume that this didn't just happen uh, in that direct moment. It wasn't like Judas had been just like a, a wonderful disciple guy following Jesus and doing everything. And then in this moment, he just had a lapse of judgment and, oh, you know, and betrayed uh, Jesus. 
This had been something that had been building all along. Third, he was a fulfillment of prophecy. This, now, this is a, a curious one. Jesus himself, himself spoke of the betrayal that would happen. He said, this had to happen, Matthew 26, verse 54. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Uh, even in the Psalms, Psalm 41, verse 9, it says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. And so this was, this was prophecy. In Matthew 27, 3 to 10, this is the, sort of the result afterwards, fast forwarding a bit. It says in verse, verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and elders, and he said, I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do we care, they retorted. That's your problem. Then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out and hanged himself. The leading priests picked up the coins. It wouldn't be right for us to put this money in the temple treasury, they said, since it was payment for murder. After some discussion, they decided to buy the potter's field and they made it into a cemetery for foreigners. That is why the field is still called the field of blood. Verse 9, this fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah that says, that says they took the 30 pieces of silver the price at which he was valued by the people of Israel and purchased the potter's field as the Lord directed. Now, just one thing to note as far as how, how about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, hey? They said, well, it wouldn't be right for us, you know, to put this in the treasury because it was payment for murder, which we arranged. But... It's not right to put it in the temple treasury, so let's buy a potter's field. And this potter's field that would, you know, whether there was people that were uh, destitute or, you know, foreigners that nobody was there to be able to, uh, you know, take care of their funeral expenses, then this, this field would provide for that. So on one hand, they say, this money was used for murder, but let's do something good with it. And, and by, this, by this field, just total hypocrisy on the religious leader's part. But the idea behind this is what I was getting to is that this was a, this was a prophecy. Now, I'll leave you this one little homework piece that I won't get into, but um, Matthew here, he says that this is the prophecy of Jeremiah, and, and yet the, the actual prophecy we primarily find in the book of Jeremiah and so there's reasons for that. So if that, you know, piques your curiosity, is that a contradiction in scripture? Uh, there's some good reasons for that. And I'll leave that for you to, to figure out on your own. So this idea of the, the prophecies as spoken here, they took the 30 pieces of silver and purchased the potter's field. Now, here's the idea. If this was, if this was prophecy fulfillment, you could say, um, what, what exactly... Did Judas have a choice? If, if it was just like, it was gonna happen, and it had to happen to fulfill prophecy, then, you know, was Judas just a puppet all along, and, and he didn't even have a choice in the matter? That would be somewhat of our logic, our understanding today, because we have a really difficult time in our, in our worldview, in our culture, thinking of God being sovereign, and us also having a free will. This, this has continually been a, a challenge for us. And yet, 
among the people, like Jewish people never had that conflict. It always made perfect sense. It was a perfect marriage of God's sovereign plan and, and our freedom and our will. It just made sense. And so this is, this is clear, um, you know, that God in his sovereign plan, he uses all things to accomplish his purposes. And he uses even the evil that people do. And it's a mystery to us. And yet that, that is how we see throughout scripture that God, he always was faithful in keeping his promises and doing his plan, even though people chose to do something that was evil, that that still did not deter the plan and the purposes of God. And so we see this in Acts chapter four, verse 29. It says this, but God knew what would happen. He's talking about Jesus going to the cross. God knew what would happen and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. And so what he's saying here is, Luke is writing this, he's saying, God knew this all along. It was always part of his plan and it was gonna bring fulfillment to his plan. And yet you are still held responsible. It says you still nailed him to a cross and, and killed him. And so while this is a mystery to us, it makes, you know, I guess, perfect sense in the mind of God. But so we don't, we don't just say, oh, Judas, uh, you know, you didn't have a choice in the matter. He clearly had a choice all along, and yet God's plans were, were achieved. Fourth, uh, he was trying to force Jesus to display his power. This is one, you know, speculation of people that said, you know, Judas, he just, he was all in as a disciple, but when he realized that the plan of Jesus was not to actually take over and come into power politically, uh, but instead Jesus kept talking about going to the cross and Jesus kept talking about dying and dying for people's sins and it's just like that Judas just kind of lost connection with the purpose. And so he thought, well, maybe if I, if I kind of stir the pot a little bit and maybe I, I kind of you know, speed up the process that Jesus will actually um, come in power, take power and control. But that's speculation. We, we don't have any you know, real clear understanding that that was in the heart and mind of, of Judas. All right, and fifth, that was my, my final one, is that we don't know. <laughs> How's that? Uh, we, don't, we don't fully know the motive, um, and, and Scripture doesn't just camp on that as a, as a thing that we need to really know. It was still something that happened, and it had to happen in order for Jesus uh, to go to the cross. All right. Close with some uh, principles for us to apply, looking at the life of Judas. First one, it just causes us to consider how strong is our faith? How strong is our faith? Uh, someone has said, people are like tea bags. You don't know how strong you are until you're in hot water. And, and I think that that's, that's clear throughout, you know, scripture throughout the disciples. When, they were, when they, were, they were tested, when they came under opposition, it was either they, you know, they, were, they scattered, they, they denied, or they, they betrayed Jesus. And so just for us to look at our own faith, um, you know, Judas, yeah, he, he did his, his part. Uh, we're gonna, Carson's going to preach in a couple weeks about Peter and his denial. And again, as I said, the disciples, they ran after Jesus was arrested. So thinking about your faith, um, does your, your faith, is it strong to help you withstand temptation? Is your faith built on, on who Jesus actually said he was and what he came to do? Or, or is your faith built on, on your own ideas, 
of who and what Jesus was all about. So today would be, as you think about Judas, um, you know, there, there isn't a need for another betrayer. Uh, there, was, there was one, and it was Judas. But for us, for us to look in the mirror and say, where, where is my faith? Uh, how strong is my, my faith? Is there cracks that uh, are forming in my, in my heart, in my relationship with God that could be, um, you know, lead me down a, a destructive path? Secondly, how close are you to the Lord? Pretty related to our faith, but it's, it's as far as close. Is it, there's a proximity and, and there's a relational closeness. Judas, you know, his feet were washed just like the, the feet of the other disciples. He was loved by Jesus with the same love as were the others. And, you know, there's complexities and there's contradictions of the life that, that he had, but he always had a seat at the table with Jesus, and so do we. So I, I ask you, and I ask myself, you know, as I look in the mirror and say, okay, is there, is there a warmth? Is there an intimacy in my relationship with Jesus in my walk with him? Or, or am I just close in proximity? Is it just because, yeah, you know, I'm a pastor, just because I, I come to church, because I lead a ministry, um, you know, because I, I, you know, whatever the things that you do that are part of, of maybe good things in your faith, but it isn't that your, your heart is really warm towards God. Uh, you're just close in proximity. That was, that was Judas. He was there all along, and yet his heart was seemingly far from Jesus. Third, how do you respond to the Holy Spirit? As it turns out, we see that the Judas, he responded to what happened with, with regret, with remorse. He felt bad. He said, oh no, I have, I have betrayed an innocent man. And he took the money and, he, and he, whether he was trying to make it right or he just thought, I got to get rid of this. And he threw it uh, on the ground. Uh, but, but it wasn't enough. It didn't turn him back to Jesus. It didn't, he didn't go back to fellowship with the disciples and just, you know, both him and Peter, and that's really the contrasting characters in this story. Peter also denied, very clearly denied any part of knowing and being with Jesus. And yet Peter, he, he wept, he repented, he came back to Jesus and Jesus restored him. But in, in Judas, he just, uh, he tried to, he felt sorrow, but it was a, a worldly sorrow. And so it, it led him to despair and to ending his life rather than repenting, as, as Peter did. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And so I ask you, as the Holy Spirit brings to mind and brings to your heart things that perhaps aren't, aren't right with, with God, um, if there's sin in your, in your life, in your heart that you're, you're cherishing, and, and yet you come to a place where, oh, that's wrong, that's bad, and you feel remorse, you feel regret, maybe that's the, the first step because we, we should feel, feel that. And yet, does it lead to actually to true repentance, to turning to God, to accepting his gift of, of grace, and, uh, and not, not landing in a place of despair. And that is the, the choice that's available uh, to us each and every day as we come to Jesus to repent, to turn to him uh, in faith. So those are the questions I'll leave you with today. Let me um, pray, and then we're going to turn our thoughts to, to responding to God 
at his invitation to the table. And I'll invite those who are, are serving to come at this time. I'll first read the scriptures and then I'll, I'll pray for the giving thanks for the bread and the cup. In the same passage where we were focusing in Luke chapter 22, we'll just step back into the Last Supper. Verse 14, it says, When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So today, as we come to this table, uh, one thing that we, we stress is that this is, this is the Lord's table. And so he invites us, he invites those who know him, that love him and desire to know and love him more. This isn't a table for those who are perfect, who have it all together. This is a table inviting us to share the meal because the one that we love and we serve has done all the work and that he has provided a means of, of grace for us through his death on the cross. And so we celebrate that, we rejoice in that, and we do as he has instructed us to do, to continue to remember his sacrifice for us. And so today, if, if you know Jesus, you're welcome to join us at this table. Uh, as the, the worship band's gonna play, we're gonna invite you to come up. And there is um, uh, bread here, and there's gluten-free option, and, and the cup, and invite you just to take that as you're served it and go and sit down, and then we will, we will receive it. We'll take it all uh, together at the same time. So let me pray. Father, we thank you today for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for what he went through uh, in this life, even at his betrayal from one of his closest friends, one he trusted and yet turned his back on him. And Lord, we, we pray today um, for us, for each of us, that we, as we examine our hearts, we examine our faith, that we would simply turn to you and acknowledge our failings, acknowledge our sin, and remember what you have done to draw us back to yourself, to, for us to enter into right relationship with you again by grace, nothing that we have done to deserve this, all gift, all grace, and we respond to it in faith. And so now, Lord, we give you thanks. We thank you for the body of Jesus which was given for us. We thank you for his blood that was shed so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And so today we, we respond as we take this bread and we take this cup and we remember your sacrifice and the new covenant that's been established 
because of what you have done on the cross. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.